Welcome back to Everything Just Changed. I'm Bryce Hales, and I am here as always with my friend Brad Edwards, and we are seeking to help you follow Jesus faithfully in a post-pandemic and post-Christian world. And let's be honest, in a post-election world, Brad, we have survived so much in 2020, and uh, we have just survived uh gosh the 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 most chaotic election of our lifetimes certainly and and it's all over uh, now and and everything you know we are now reveling in post election paradise where all the strife and all of the conflict and all of the polarization has ceased and we are just uh so happy for everything to be going back to normal and Bryce, everybody's Bryce. Everybody's Christ. friendly with their neighbors, and and life is just great once again Christ. because we we survived this election. So, <laughs> do you realize, by the way, that this is exactly how we started the last episode we recorded? This, uh, might, this one might be better. Uh, that, that's that's well, fine. No, but, <laughs> I love it. I love it. So so the question that we want to kind of um, bring to the surface today is where do we go from here? There there has been so much chaos, so much disunity in in our country, in our culture, but even in our churches and maybe most tragically in our churches um, this year. And now that we've gotten through the thing we knew was going to be horrible all along in 2020 and things are not settling down. Um, where do we go from here? How do we begin to heal? And I think really what we want to talk about today is trust, right? What, what is the function of, of trust in the process of healing uh, as individuals, as churches, um, as a culture? How do we begin to trust one another once again so that we can move on, not, not like sweeping our differences under the rug, but actually being able to, you know, relate to people that we disagree with once again? Let's talk about trust. Well, yeah, one of the things that we've been, I've I've mentioned a few times that we have been doing this politics sermon series at at the table where I'm a pastor. And actually, I I cut it off early. We were supposed to go through these these, uh, last Sunday and then this coming Sunday, the Sunday before Thanksgiving and Advent starting. And part of the reason I did so is because I I was hearing from a lot of our people like, what do I do? Like, I'm feeling anxious. Uh, I'm feeling like, a lot of anticlimactic letdown in terms of the, uh, the amount of stress that we were hoping would probably uh, kind of evaporate or at least lessen after the election. And um, the pandemic certainly isn't helping, especially depending on wherever you're listening to this from. Uh, it probably doesn't matter much at this point that the the incidence rates are spiking across the country and it is here as well. But it's getting worse everywhere right now. But it's interesting in the midst of this, that anxiety and this stress, there's something that uh, I, I've been realizing, Bryce, uh, about kind of our thesis that we've been exploring here uh, as it regards individualism that has a lot to do with the, uh, the distinctions and relationship between safety and trust, right? Mm-hmm. We, we try to cure this anxiety. We try to experience uh, a relief from stress by pursuing safety, and and we the the relationship that it has with trust is if if we have enough safety then we will feel like we can trust right but trust itself is something that you don't do when it's safe otherwise we just call it common sense right and right, and if we're right. waiting till we have enough safety 
to ease the anxiety before we feel like we have trust, we're actually kind of doubled down. Uh, we're doubling down on something that is not going to deliver what we hope it will. And it only, it actually only increases the anxiety that we're experiencing because we're, we're not trusting yet. Hmm. Yeah. So you're saying trust, we only need trust when there are reasons to, um, you know, potentially mistrust. Like when everything's fine, when, when everybody's on the same page, when there's no disagreement, there's no, no need for trust because there's alignment. And yes, so or when there's perfect safety, there's no need for trust because there's no risk involved. Then it's not trust anymore. You're just safe, right? Yeah. This trust is something I, I use the analogy of a bridge, right? Um, yeah. You can know that a bridge will bear the weight um, based on, you know, whatever blueprints and, um, and calculations that are made, but you don't really know that the bridge will bear your weight unless you start to walk across it, unless you trust that that is true and take the risk that it will hold your weight and that it's not misconstructed or, uh, or they're, they're, it's, it's, it's inaccurate in some way. Right. And so relationships are like this all the time, right? It's actually, it's actually through commitment that trust is cultivated, not safety. Uh, and, and for, and this is how it relates back to our, our individualism thesis, uh, is commitment is not something that, you know, us individualists, we don't value that very much. We, we want alignment, right? Not commitment because alignment's safe. If I can find a group of people, a community, a church, even that aligns with what I already believe, then I will feel safe enough to trust it. And where I, it's not aligned with what I already believe. I experience, uh, yeah. Alignment isn't commitment. Alignment is like, I'm with you as long as we both are in agreement, your, your perspective and my perspective line up. So we're together, but the moment they go separate ways, we go separate ways. Yeah. And, and this has, I mean, like, can you imagine if, if we treated marriage this way, this way, Oh wait, we do. Right. <laughs> as long as, uh, as long as we are aligned, then we will stay committed. But the, you know, divorce rates are very much reinforced by a reality that commitment seems conditional, uh, and not based on vows in so many ways. It, it's conditional mm-hmm. to, you know, how we feel, um, you know, and, and yes, the, the degree to which we feel safe because we're on the same page, which I just want to be very clear. I am not talking about situations where there is abuse. Like that's, that's a, sure. uh, uh, a pretty epic uh, misalignment uh, that it has to do with common decency and, and character and integrity as well. But there is a very, our, our attachments to people, to relationships, to institutions, to places mm-hmm. are, is so frivolous in part because we, our posture toward those things is such that we want to be able to, or we, we withhold our trust until it's safe. Yeah. So there, there are, there are basically two fundamental sorts of relationships. There are, um, there are individualistic oriented consumer relationships and there are covenantal relationships and Mm -hmm. a, a consumeristic relationship is a relationship in which the needs of the individual trump the needs of the relationship itself. And let me just be clear that like not all consumer relationships are bad. Like my relationship with Home Depot <laughs> is a consumeristic relationship. It's a relationship on which I buy from Home Depot things at a price that I'm willing to pay, but I am under no obligation to uh, continue doing that. And so if I decide that, you know, I like blue better, I'm free to go to Lowe's all the time <laughs> uh, at, at, at any point, right? Um, 
Well, they're, yeah, right. In, in many ways, my relationship with Amazon Prime is covenantal functionally, but it would be very well, foolish to to okay, actually hold, commit to that hold, degree. Okay, so hold, hold hold that thought for a sec, because that's that's kind of where um, I think that's a great point. But so a, a covenantal relationship is a relationship where the needs of the relationship trump the needs of the individual. And so the hmm. best way to think about this is actually a parenting relationship, because if I look at my four children who are lovely and wonderful and so loud. If I look at them and say, I am in this as long as the relationship is giving me what I need. But the moment I'm not getting out of this, what I need, then I am out. What do we call that? We actually call that abuse in that situation, right? So you look at, you look at the, um, a parenting relationship is the as a great example of a covenantal relationship because it's so clearly not equitable, right? Mm-hmm. As a parent, you give and you give and you give far more than you. And of course, yeah, your, your kids are a joy and you love being your parent, but like the day in day out is often exhausting. That's what a covenantal relationship looks like. And we are created to live in a, in a series of covenantal relationships. And so what you're describing in the marriage relationship now is a, is a shift where as a society, we have really moved from viewing marriage covenantally a sense mm. of, okay, once I say I do, then I am more committed to the good of the relationship than I am to my own individual sense of fulfillment that comes as a result of being married to you, right? And now we view it as it shifted from a covenantal relationship to an individualistic consumer-oriented relationship. And so the moment I feel like I'm not getting out of it as much as I'm putting into it, I'm out. Now, going back to what you said, the irony of this is that so many companies actually like AT&T really wants me to believe that I am in a covenantal relationship with them (laughs) where I am not, you know, I am free to switch to Verizon at any moment. And I might, because the house we're in now has terrible reception on AT&T. But they (laughs) really want me to believe that I am somehow like being immoral if I leave them and it's not true. So there is this whole uh, rejiggering of relationships that have happened where um, relationships that should just be based on individual consumer preferences. uh, There's pressure to think of them in covenantal ways, but even more tragically relationships uh, to family, to marriage, to church uh, that are inherently covenantal have been turned on their head and we all now are tending to view them as in this individualistic way that says, I, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm in this marriage as long as it works for me. Uh, I'll be your friend as long as you, it works for me. But the moment that we disagree, we're going our separate ways. We're seeing this big time in the church. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we both know we're both pastors. We've experienced this ourselves. We have friends around the country. Every pastor is dealing with this where we're dealing with with people who are coming from, let's say, both sides of the cultural political spectrum who are kind of going, unless you affirm publicly my values, you know, pro-Trump, pro-whatever the other side, whatever's beyond Joe Biden, I am out and I'm going to take as many people with me as I possibly can. And the result is that trust or social capital, which is, I think social capital is sort of a public expression of or public feeling of trust for other mm. people in our society is at, well, a, yeah, it's, is it, at an all-time low. 
Yeah, well, I mean, yes, I think so. part of the reason why we are all so stinking exhausted and ready for 2020 to end. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, we've, we know, uh, quote unquote, that no man is an island, and yet all of our inclinations and our posture increasingly leads us towards atomization of the individual and 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 being isolated and alone on an island uh you know bryce you and i we were just talking about how we both uh purely coincidentally we have both been talking about wanting to start uh, a book uh by yuval levin called a time to build and uh it's a book that's all about institutions and so much of what we're talking about right now is is fundamentally a skill like trust is a skill uh, a a posture and a um, a, virtue a virtue that yeah. is both necessary to, to 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 be part of and belong in an institution, but it's also one that is cultivated within institutions. And part of Yuval Levin's thesis is that we don't even realize that so much of the alienation and the uh, isolation the dissatisfaction that we keep seeing growing through surveys and research, the rising suicide rates, the social distrust that we have, all of this, all of this is continuing on pace and in parallel with an erosion of trust in institutions. Whether those are media institutions, political, familial, it doesn't matter. All of that is the case. And Hey, Bryce, so much of what we've been talking about in this podcast, you know, our perspective is that particular institution that is the local church. And, and we, we, we pivoted in, in from season one to season two, because as we were processing this and having the pandemic accelerate the trends that we are currently on, we realized that actually that individualism, which is kind of the opposite of an institutionalism is, is the thing that has that more than secularism and, and, more than evangelicalism alone, it's actually the common denominator between the two that is is so problematic and making institutional leaders in a lot of ways scratching our heads and and like what in the world is happening? What's going on right now? Um, yeah, yeah. What in the world is is going on? What's happening right now is that uh, as Yuval Levin points out that institutions in the last whatever period of time have shifted from being being um, molds that form our, our form our character so that we live as virtuous people uh, into essentially platforms that we leverage to grow our own celebrity, our own and, brand, our own identity. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. And so the irony of, of this is that um, I think this is so important for us to understand, and especially as we think about who we are as pastors and who is is likely to be listening to our podcast, this is happening on both sides of the political spectrum. I mean, we, yes. we tend to think of the kind of um, building our own brand um, maybe as something that is more prevalent among people who lean progressive. Um, and, you know, there was this incident a few um, months ago where uh, Calvin University elected its first openly gay student body president who uh, wrote in the student newspaper, it is beyond time that the LGBTQ community is represented in the highest student leadership position at Calvin. And I am proud to be the first um, Calvin, obviously a, a Christian college um, 
And and so this is a this is a, a classic example of somebody on the more progressive side saying, actually, this institution doesn't exist to shape and mold my character, but it's really it it needs to be reshaped around uh, around the preferences of individuals, and so I'm going to use this as a platform to grow my own brand. Okay. Clearly, that happens on the on the progressive side of the spectrum. What a lot of uh, you know, I think our pastor friends uh, are experiencing, Brad, is is the same sort of thing happening um, on the other side of the spectrum, where I I, I can't even um, count the number of pastors I know who have had the experience essentially of. Uh, trying to pastor their churches well and faithfully in the midst of a very, very difficult season uh, through a very contentious election and preaching through uh, (laughs) the, um, well, I actually referenced this when I preached for for you guys, uh, when was that, six weeks ago, the uh, passage in, in Luke of Jesus um, you know, the, 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 the religious leaders trying to catch Jesus out and, and, um, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he says, render unto Caesar, what is Caesar's and to God, what is God's? And which is, a, you know, just a great text as we seek to help pastor our people through a very contentious election, uh, I know friends who have referenced that passage, and the response has been from people on the kind of uh, extreme right side of the spectrum, incredible dis- uh, disappointment, you know, a lack of just, I can't believe that you didn't just endorse Trump in this sermon. And uh, because you didn't do this, I'm sending what I think is a better sermon to, you know, a text message group of people in the church and I'm leaving and I'm going to take as many people with me on my way out. Okay. I'm not actually talking about whether that's right or that wrong. That was oddly but, specific, by the way. So I think it's wrong. <laughs> I, I've heard that on so many occasions. Mm. It's, it's unbelievable. My, my point is that it's the same thing. It's an attempt by an individual to say this institution, this church exists to validate my perspective and sort of endorse my personal brand. And well, the moment that it doesn't do that, I'm out. Well, and, and I, that, gosh, yeah, I think that is a, a really, a very explicit example of how that plays out. Uh, but there's, there's, I've got some, I've got an, a pretty implicit one for you here too. So the, example with Calvin University that that Bryce was referencing is came from an article that I'm kind of still a little bit pissed that Brett McCracken <laughs> wrote because I really wanted to write this article first and he even quoted Yuval Levin and it published this morning I'm not angry about it it's fine because I don't uh you know my purpose in doing this is not performative it's it's formative um so <laughs> this doesn't apply to me at all uh but in there he had a line in a paragraph that hit me between the eyes and um it was shortly after that example and it, he says this uh, and he puts in scare quotes, belonging as, as a concept used to be a process, often bumpy, that involved individuals changing to better fit the collective culture and identity of the institution they joined. Now, the burden of belonging falls squarely on the institution. If a member feels unappreciated, alienated or unseen, it's the institution's responsibility now to make that individual feel like they belong, not at all the other way around. Now, the reason why that that really jumped out at me is Bryce, as you know, we had been, we've been looking for a, a, a new pastor of spiritual formation, ironically. Yeah. And, uh, the interview committee at, that at we have church at the table at, 
yes, at, yeah. at the table. Um, and the interview committee we put together, one of the the things that I have said over the years as a, as an expression of our vision that I was really intrigued by how common it was with everybody there uh, was this idea that we want to be the kind of church where you don't have to believe in order to belong, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, we, we want to lead with grace and hospitality such that it is actually through your belonging here, your acceptance in this community, regardless of whether you believe or not, that you end up coming to believe. But what I've kind of realized and what this, this, this idea of institutions helped, help, has helped me with is realizing that there's an intermediate step between uh, belonging and believing, hmm. and that is becoming, hmm. right? That is hmm. the unavoidable fruit of being in an institution and allowing it to shape you, you actually end up becoming someone, a better version of yourself. It's, and I'm speaking specifically for the, about the church, um, such that belief then is more of a realization than it is a coercion uh, or something you have to convince yourself of. It ends up being the natural outflow of the transformation that has happened through your belonging in the body of Christ. The, the fact that the interesting thing about this, and this is why this is helpful for me, is it doesn't have to be as explicit as what you're describing in terms of it being over a political thing and people kind of refusing to, to accept another idea. It's as simple as those at the table who have accepted the idea that they're, they're, they're belonging to this church, this institution, will end up resulting with them becoming a different person or, or a better version of the same person. Those that have accepted that have experienced that the satisfaction that comes from that, the contentment that comes from it. And it's not a light switch. It's a dimmer switch. It's to the degree that we are uh, are committed, once again, to that, the, the degree to which we are trusting that institution to, to shape and form us. And there are people um, at my church, just like any church, who you know, you can, you can attend and you can participate without kind of taking that step of belonging that is open to also becoming and therefore then believing. Mm. And so I think to bring this back to this, this idea of trust, and, and this, is, this is the challenge in an individualistic culture, right, is how do we cultivate trust in institutions when the very idea of it is almost a foreign concept now because skepticism of, in, of institutions is such a cultural norm, um, you know, leaders – um, power being accumulated in institutions. Like, yeah. how do you restore trust without people trusting and experiencing it yeah. such that they're able to trust more? Like, that's well, it's it's such a chicken and the egg challenge. It, it is such a chicken and the egg challenge. And yet I, I like the um, the metaphor you just used that it's a it's a dimmer switch. It's not an on off switch because mm-hmm. um I think this is one of those issues that it's tempting to think of it as either I'm going to trust you or I'm not going to trust you. Mm. And yet I think what, what we are inviting people to do is take the next step. There, mm-hmm. there are so many things in life that it's not a, it's not a yes or no decision, but that, um, that you have to make on the spot, but it's a, 
it's a series of small decisions. And so, I mean, just to kind of flesh that out, like we're not asking you to say, Hey, are we going to, Hey, I'm thinking about maybe visiting the table next week. And so I'm looking at your website, but the decision I've got to make right now is, am I all in, am I going to trust Brad to be my pastor and lead me? No questions asked. That's not, that's not what we're advocating for, but there is a, I um, wouldn't do that. Right. <laughs> like, like, exactly. Especially if you read my bio on the website, I don't know that. Why would you? Yeah, no. Uh, yeah. I don't even believe, you know, my own, you know, perspectives, uh, <laughs> percentage of the time. I don't but trust yeah, myself it, either. Yeah. It's a small, it's, it's a series of small decisions of, am I going to show up and am I going to be open to what happens? Uh, am I going to come back? Am I going to, um, make an effort to, uh, connect with some people? Am I going to ask some questions when I'm confused? Confused instead of, um, you know, assuming the worst at mm. any point, I, I, I have the, um, you know, the opportunity to take a small step in a, in a, in the direction of trust in the direction of, you know, of, of covenantalism of building relationships that don't exist simply for my own sake. And yet you're right. Like it, the bottom line is that it feels counterintuitive to us. Yeah. And, and, and what it's made so much harder too. like, I want to validate some of some of you listening uh, have experienced significant abuse and pain from uh, institutional power being uh, leveraged or even wielded in ways that are not for your good and not about becoming a better version of yourself. So there's a lot of this that is that of this distrust that is frankly valid. Um, I actually shared this article with our staff over our, our Slack channel and um, one of our guys, Danny, who, you know, shout out to Danny. He designed our logo too uh, for this podcast. He, yes. he made the, he, he was like, really like, I, I, I think, I don't know, frustrated is probably too strong of a word, but he just really kind of reacted to the article in such a way that was like, this isn't doing enough business with so many of the people who come through our doors who are, you know, we've used the term post evangelical because they've been burned. And, uh, I don't think it's this like, you know, uh, I want to be affirmed, not formed that are, is, is the case for a lot of people. And I think that that's part of what makes this so difficult is it's really, there's like a cultural dynamic, but then there's also a, a, a uh, a sin dynamic, a brokenness dynamic that yes, institutions are broken. And, um, I loved in Yuval Levin's book, he actually talked about how the way we feel about this historic moment is significantly worse than the way we felt about the turmoil of the sixties and race riots and the civil rights era, even though that time period was significantly yeah. more violent and, and disruptive yeah. to society. Yeah. Such a and great he says, point. and, and part of the reason that our experience of it is so different, like it feels worse as one. Yes. I mean, unless we are, you know, uh, boomer or older, uh, we, we don't have a memory of that. Right. right. However, societally, like that generation at that time versus this generation at this time experiences so dramatically differently. And it's, it's, it's because we lack the anchoring trust in institutions to help us weather that, that cultural storm and, and those, those shifts yeah. and changes. I, 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 um, that part of the book just kind of hit me between the eyes. And the way I thought of it was, was this, it's, um, the things that are hitting us are less extreme than in the sixties and seventies but they're hitting us, you know, they're, they're not being deflected mm -hmm. by the institutions that, yes. that we are a part of. And yes. so 
when I have to make every decision as an individual on the surface, that sounds like freedom, but the reality of it is exhausting because I am making everything up all the time. Every new wave of crisis, even this year in 2020 hits us as, you know, kind of, we, we, we get the, the, um, you know, the full force of it. We take it personally because the institutions that we would have trusted are weak or we don't trust them. And so they don't shelter us. Yeah. It's unmediated yeah. anxiety. Yeah. And, and and this is this is what's so interesting to me about it is I think if you overlay distrust of institutions with a line graph of uh, the rise and prevalency of social media, especially with the smartphone uh, being becoming ubiquitous in 2010. We've talked a little bit about this before. I think you will see a very strong correlation there, right? Because social media is it, functionally, that's what it is. It's, it's a performative institution. Mm. It's an institution that is not uh, created. I mean, we, don't, to we, don't, f- we don't actually call them. We don't call them social media institutions. We call them social media platforms. Which pl- exactly. Exactly. Because an institution is intended to shape and form you. A platform is intended to amplify and express you. And that's what it's, that's, that's the difference, but they function in every other aspect, like a place for belonging, right in, into, to greater mm-hmm. connectedness and where you can yeah. be around people who are, have a shared social purpose. This is part of Yuval Levin's, uh, definitions, uh, definition of an institution. Um, and what it does is because it promises it to it, that it's easier and it is on the front end, it is a lot easier to, to feel like you belong through social media than in a local institution. But in the long term, it's not for your good any more than an abusive institution is because it is literally seeking to monetize your engagement. And I'm, I, I'm not a Luddite. I am sitting in an office that is wired with Wi-Fi and has Sonos speakers, and it makes me very happy. Yes. Um, and I am tr- like... I'm actually going to, I've never even tried this before, so y'all can hold me accountable, but I am only going to be, I'm going to be fasting from all social media over Advent to try and communicate the importance of this to my own church. And I'm going to limit, I'm going to be on once a week for like an hour. I haven't figured out what day yet because I need to retweet, you know, our our podcast episodes, but that's it, right? (laughs) For this reason, because I'm convinced that it is shaping me in ways I am not even aware of uh, because it doesn't have my good and my flourishing uh, as its purpose. Yeah. And that's the difference. Yeah. And so, right. This is why, you know, I'm, I'm, we're, we're actually fleshing out some of my sermon, uh, this week, Bryce. Um, nice, nice. But I'm, you can, uh, no need to, no need to credit anyone here. Just, just steal it. Go for it. <laughs> Good. Great. Um, but I'm, I'm preaching on Philippians four verses eight through nine. And it just like reading this passage through the lens that we've been building over the last however many minutes right now um, is fascinating to me because Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, then think about these things. Mm. Think about these things, focus on them, meditate on them, right? But instead, like what social media as an institution cultivates is the exact opposite. Whatever is big, if true, whatever is shameful, whatever is unjust, whatever is polluted, whatever is crude, whatever is outrageous, if there is any brokenness or fault. about these things. <laughs> right? If there is anything worthy outraged. of out, 
I would, yeah. there you go. If there's anything worthy of outrage, repost, retweet, doom scroll these things, right? That's, yeah. that's yeah. the shaping of social media. Right. Uh, but then yeah. Paul continues what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And I think there is in this, in that verse in particular, a little bit of a, 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 a hint toward how we can start to trust, as you were saying, Bryce, in baby steps, which is if you see these things in me, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice those things. So to the degree that you have a leader of an institution who is who is being formed and shaped by that institution such that they are bearing the fruit of the spirit, you can probably begin to take baby steps of trust despite yeah. whatever wounds or difficulties are being burned you've had. And Which to are the degree real, that you don't want to minimize that reality, but yeah, you can yeah. take the baby steps. You don't have to go whole hog <laughs> right now. And can, can I say, baby steps of trust. and I want to say something, especially to like, leaders, and I'm not just saying pastors, but like maybe you're the leader of an organization or leader of a team in your in your vocation or your business. The hard part about this is leading in such a way that you're not surprised at being disappointed. What I mean by that is when you seek to to lead in that way and to demonstrate trustworthiness, if people don't end up trusting you, like it's okay. Hmm. Paul di- Paul wasn't trusted. He was stoned and kicked out of cities. He was not always received well and with open arms. And I will tell you, part of what we like, I am, I am learning as a leader is not allowing the anxiety or, or even other people's distrust of me to be, uh, fully truth. I'm trying to anchor, uh, basically whether I'd thought not, I, I have been trustworthy enough to, for my church as a pastor, not in, perception or opinion, which is shaped by individualism as well as wounds and everything else. But in, am I being dependent on Christ and allowing him to, to, to shape my identity and my own self-perception of worth and not, not the, uh, trustworthiness of, of, of what is perceived in me. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, Because if I'm doing these things and I am trying to be shaped by my, by, by my church too, as a pastor, I mean, I'm called to do, I'm called to, to that as a Christian. Yeah. yeah. That has to be enough. Yeah, that has to, exactly. That has to be enough. That's all you can do. And, and, and when the anxiety around whether the fact that I'm doing that is being sufficiently recognized and affirmed by Mm -hmm. those I'm leading, um, when that reality begins to drive my behavior, number one, it totally knocks me off of, of what I'm actually trying to do in, in terms of trying to be filled with and therefore model Christ to others <laughs> because I'm well, right, yeah, because now being driven br- by the anxiety. But but more to the point of what we're talking about today, I'm actually falling into the performative uh, trap of individualism and saying that <laughs> I, I my leadership is, is based on... Um, on my performance, which I'm left for, which I'm leveraging the influence of this institution. Mm. Yeah. And that's, man, is that insidious and sneaky because yeah. even like when I was talking about that, that kind of vision expression of, you know, we want to be the kind of church where you, be, you don't have to believe in order to belong. There's a very good inclination in that. And there's also a bit of a, um, we have this figured out kind of an implicit, mm. Uh, performance of that, like as, as, you know, we're different from those other churches. And what I, in a lot of ways, what I've realized just as, as a pastor is that uh, uh, in a, in a church that's characterized by that vision, I 
kind of carry the burden of making sure everyone feeling like they are belonging, whether or not they actually do the trust and commit into that. And so if, if someone doesn't feel like they belong, I just assume that's my fault. And that's actually me performing, failing Mm. to, but it's based on a performative leadership that is not, it's, it's actually not Christ. It's not Christ-like and it's also not going to flourish people, uh, as speaking truth with love will. Mm. Wow. So all that said, and we have followed, uh, more, rabbit trails than, than usual even, which is impressive, uh, an impressive performance even. Um, Bryce, we've covered a lot of ground in a big picture sense. Can you, can you break it down? Like what, what do we actually do with this, uh, at the end of the day when we are feeling that stress and anxiety, because even seeing this differently doesn't necessarily help us know what to do with it. Yeah. So I I think a couple of things that come to mind. One is um, you know, going back to the election as a point of reference, there often at the end of an election is this moment where um, the winner um, kind of calls for unity and the loser uh, concedes defeat. Mm-hmm. And and I, I guess I just, I, if this isn't obvious at this point, um, whether or not uh, those things happen, it is not going to sort of lead to that's not going to be the thing that leads to this moment of health and healing and rebuilding trust culturally. Hmm. And I, I think that we have to begin to realize um, it, it's often tempting to think about some of these uh, ideas about um, covenantalism, individualism, uh, health, trust as sort of top down realities hmm. And I think I don't think it's going to work. I don't think Joe Biden saying, hey, I'm your president, whether you voted for me or not, is going to lead to the sort of healing that's necessary. I don't think if Donald Trump ever actually does concede, I don't think that's going to allay the anxiety of those who have been his most vociferous uh, supporters. So here's what I want to do. I want to leave you with like two very practical suggestions. We are going into uh, Thanksgiving and the Christmas season. And um, so two things. One one is in this season, it's a opportunity where we are going to be sitting down with uh, friends and family members and gathering around tables, which means that we, let's be honest, are going to be sharing meals with people uh, that we have probably had strong disagreements with, you know, we, we, we know it's not just like this is happening at a national level. It's within families where, you know, we're, we're at odds with, with one another. There could be a temptation to sit down at Thanksgiving and sort of rehash. We'll see actually won, or, or, or let's rehash that argument we had last time. Instead, I want to invite you to go into these meals and these conversations, uh, with the attitude of how can I enter this rebuilding trust? What does it look like to to trust those that I may disagree with, but actually to begin rebuilding trust? Secondly, similarly, we gotta we gotta think about this at the church level too. And so I want to invite you to think about what would it look like to trust or rebuild trust with your pastor. That might be as simple as asking a question <laughs> before sending the tweet or the text. <laughs> you know, um, at least one. 
at least yeah. one. Yeah. I mean, I mean, here, here's what I know. Uh, pastors, nobody goes into ministry because they are setting out to destroy people's lives. Like if, <laughs> right. Uh, really? There, there are far more, if that's your goal, there are far more effective, much better oh, paid ways seriously. to do that. So yes. anybody who, um, like no, your pastor, even if you disagree with him and can't understand why he's doing what he's doing, he's not doing it, you know, with malicious intent. I know that there are some exceptions, but let's just say in general, your pastor is not acting with malicious intent. And so if you are frustrated by what's going on, can we start with the, with the perspective of, I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to trust that uh, this person who God has called to shepherd and to lead his church um, is doing so at least with genuineness and with, with an attempt at integrity. Can I trust uh, that that's where he's coming from. And can I begin by like asking a question before pulling the nuclear option? Hmm. Just, ba- just baby steps, ask a question, Thanksgiving dinner. Let's think of these as opportunities to rebuild trust. Love it. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you're interested in exploring more about the value of institutions that Brad and I are talking about here, please head over to our website, kingandkingdom.community where we've got links to a couple of the resources we mentioned in this episode, as well as a video interview Yuval Levin did last week at the Trinity Forum. That's a great introduction to his work. While you're there, be sure to hit subscribe. Leave us a comment. We would love to engage with you. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Our theme music was recorded by Kevin McLeod and used under a Creative Commons license from filmmusic.io. And our logo was designed by Danny Rankin. We'll be back next week helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world right here on Everything Just Changed.